Jesus told his disciple, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. Reaching the whole world means going to hard places. There are more than 4,000 people groups that have not heard of the good news. That's three billion people living in darkness and without hope. Our calling as the Alliance is to go to these least rich people. The majority of the Alliance workers are in these remaining hard places, locations that are often hard to get to, where deep-rooted cultures are resistant to the gospel, places where ministry could carry the risk of imprisonment, deportation, or bodily harm and even in locations that look easier economically or socially. Our workers are still doing very challenging ministry. We choose these places on purpose because they are in need of Jesus' presence. In 2004, my husband and I followed God's leading and moved to a hard place overseas. We faced constant obstacle and discouragement. And at one point, I broke down and cried out. I can't take this anymore. I want to go home. Nothing could be worth all this. As I collapsed in tears, I heard the Holy Spirit whispered, Jesus is worth it. He is worth it all. And because Jesus is worth it, the unreached people he loves are worth it. It's only because Jesus commanded that we go and make disciples of all nations that the gospel reached us. Now it is our turn. This will require greater partnership with the Global Alliance family. It will require us to equip and send workers from diverse backgrounds. This calling is going to take all of us working together as an alliance. The task of reaching the unreached is hard, but he is worth it all. Alliance family, would you join me in praying that God would open doors to hard places? Pray that he will call more workers to the harvest field. Give to the Great Commission Fund so that we can expand our work to even more hard places. Will we do our part? Will we be the generation to complete the Great Commission and take the good news to hard places? Selamat pagi. Good morning. And thank you to all of you, as well as everyone online, for joining us this morning. It's a privilege to be with you. Some of you were here last night. And I'm a little bit tempered this morning. I don't want to set off another fire alarm. Um, my name is Damien Suhing Lee. I was born and raised in Malacca, Malaysia, of Chinese, Malaysian, Portuguese, Creole descent. If that is confusing to you, imagine living that for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> I moved to Canada as a first-generation immigrant in 1992. Uh, at 18 years old, it was in January that I moved to Toronto and it was minus 23 degrees Celsius. It was 33 degrees two days when we left Malaysia, and I thought I had gotten over that traumatic experience until two days ago when I arrived in Calgary. 
it was minus seven, and Toronto was 23 degrees before that. So thank you, all of you, for this warm welcome. I spent the next 18 years of my life in the cities of Toronto, Kingston, Calgary, Edmonton, completing an undergrad degree, meeting and marrying my lovely wife, Darlene, now of, uh, we're going into our 24th year, welcoming two children. You can clap, she deserves that. Um, completing an undergrad degree, um, attending seminary, pastoring for four years. At that time, it was a blessing and privilege to have been part of four Alliance churches. And then in 2011, we were deployed to the Middle East where we served as Alliance International Workers for a decade until July of 2021. On March 1st of 2022, I stepped into the role of International Vice President for the Alliance Canada with the joy and privilege of overseeing our global engagements in 36 countries among people groups that have yet to hear about Jesus. And I was quickly becoming aware of the various challenging discussions surrounding missions, what missions is, what it's supposed to be, or how it's been manipulated over the centuries as a tool for the Western colonization of indigenous peoples and their lands. As I said, I was born and raised in Malacca, Malaysia, colonized by the Portuguese and then the Dutch and then the British for a total of 446 years, all of whom brought their flavor of Christianity along with their ships and their soldiers and their weapons. The blood of colonial Christianity runs through my veins. I also know that it was missionaries who started the schools and churches that I attended for most of my upbringing. And quite frankly, my country, my city, my life was qualitatively much more improved due to the presence of Franciscan missionaries who dedicated their lives to serve God while taking on the vows of poverty and chastity and obedience. Sounds a whole lot of, like Jesus to me. In a world of polarization, we love to separate things into black and white. Yes, do missions. No, don't do missions at all. But we live in a world where gray is a reality. And so I wrote the following in the foreword of this book. There are many who would challenge our ongoing global missional engagements based on the current climate of mounting hostility between Protestant evangelicalism and broader Canadian culture. As a counter perspective, permit me to say this. Our response to erroneous engagement is not disengagement, but rightful engagement. Now more than ever, we as a Canadian alliance need to look to prophetic exiles such as Joseph and Daniel and Esther, the disciples, Paul the Apostle, our Lord Jesus himself, men and women, on the margins of their respective cultures, yet in courageous faith, they leaned into the task of making God known wherever they were. They were never part of the majority. First Alliance Church, you are part of the Alliance Canada. This is our vision prayer. Oh God, with all our hearts, we long for you. Come, come, transform us to be Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, mission-focused people, multiplying disciples everywhere in Canada and around the world. This is why we exist, to multiply disciples everywhere. You are one of four to 500 Alliance churches in Canada. Thank you for your prayers. 
your giving to the Global Advance Fund and so many of the project funds that our workers run, which is a pool fund that supports workers and ministries worldwide and in Canada to share the gospel with people who haven't heard the name of Jesus. Your continued support equips and sustains our movement to multiply disciples into the hard places. We would not be able to do what we do around the world without you. And so on behalf of all our national office staff, on behalf of all our international workers in the dozens of countries, almost 200 of them, workers, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. In Luke 12, starting in verse 54, Jesus says this, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain. And it does. And when a south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? See, it's important for us to understand this season of global missions for three reasons. One, it helps us determine the nations and people groups we engage with. Two, it helps discern the kind of work and partnerships we develop. And then three, it helps focus our finite resources, people, finances, and time. They're all finite. Towards our vision prayer of multiplying disciples everywhere. And so for those of us, I'm going to start with this. For those of us in the room that like dealing with data... This next few minutes is for you. <laughs> of the world's total population of 8 billion people, 3.4 billion, 42%, have no exposure to the good news of Jesus Christ. Researchers would say a striking reality for the global mission movement is that the countries with the most Christians receive the largest number of missionaries. There remains an imbalance in the countries most needing Christian missionaries. They tend to receive the fewest. And so one dramatic example is this. Brazil, majority Christian country, receives a total of 20,000 missionaries. Whereas Bangladesh, a majority Muslim country, with nearly as many people receives only 1,000 missionaries. The old adage is true. The rich get richer. The poor get poorer. When it comes to the issue of low contact, Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims have relatively little contact with Christians. In each case, 86% or more of these religionists globally do not personally know a single Christian. 86%. There is least personal contact in overwhelmingly Muslim-majority countries. Only 10% of individuals in Western Asia and 11% in Northern Africa are thought to have personal contact with a Christian. If Christians don't go, then who will? On the issue of the picture of global Christianity, in the year 1900, 82% of the world's Christians were in the global north, known as North America and Europe with 18% in the global south. So much of our Western methods and systems were, that we use today were created for that time. But take a look. By 2020, 67% of the world's Christians 
were in the Global South, also known as the majority world, not North America, not Europe. Many of you are from the majority world, myself included. With only 33% of today's Christians in North America and Europe. That's the picture of global Christianity. What about global poverty? You see, almost 700 million people live in extreme poverty, surviving on less than $2 a day. That could not get you even a Starbucks in Calgary. Women, children, and youth account for the majority of the world's poor. 1.3 billion people, of which 644 million are children, in 107 countries, more than half of the world's known countries, lives in multidimensional poverty mostly in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. That is 22% of the world's population. Now, if you're wondering, what is multidimensional poverty? That means it's not just a lack of income, it is a lack of access to education and clean drinking water and food and health care. The things that we maybe take for granted in this part of the world, using a health card, turning on the tap for a cup of cold water, over 22% of the world has no access to that. What about the persecution of Christians around the world? You see, the World Watch list is an annual report on the global persecution of Christians, ranking the top 50 countries where Christians face the most extreme persecution. The report can be found online, and I highly suggest, I recommend at least skimming it to give you a sense of what some of our brothers and sisters in these countries go through as they follow Jesus. In just the last year, there have been over 360 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. Almost 6,000 of our brothers and sisters are killed for their faith. Over 5,000 churches and other Christian buildings attacked. Over 6,000 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned, and almost 4,000 Christians abducted. Now, in my survey or in my anecdotal survey of traveling around and talking and speaking with people around the world, these numbers are almost certainly to be underrepresented, underreported. The Alliance Canada, we have deployed international workers among most people groups who are largely Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhists. Our workers serve in 13 out of the 50 of the most dangerous countries in the world to be a Christian. Your international workers serve in 33 countries, 16 of which are creative access nations, countries where gospel proclamation and following Jesus is either restrictive, illegal, dangerous, or all of the above. You see, from the very inception of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, our movement was founded along the lines of going to the hard places, as Paul writes in Romans 15, 20. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I will not be building on someone else's foundation. Or as A.B. Simpson would paraphrase it, our movement stands for a commitment to reach the most neglected field, to avoid the beaten tracks of other laborers, to press on to regions beyond, to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. And that is a significant part of our world today. You see, the red portions on this graph represent the proportion of unreached among each people group. As you can see, the majority of unreached people groups are South Asian, followed by 
Sub-Saharan, Arab, Southeast Asian, Malay, Turkic, and Persian. There is a whole lot of red on that graph. And so what do Alliance International workers do? In some of these countries, you think, so what do some of our workers do? Well, our church development strategy is led by Raul and Donna Santos. What is church development? It is to establish and grow and strengthen reproducing faith communities among those with little or no access to the message of Jesus. And so many of our international workers, they fall under this category. For 10 years, this is what Darlene and I did. We learned language. We engaged culture. We visited local families in their homes and hospitals, prayed for and with them, had spiritual conversations. We helped strengthen and grow the local church in the region so that they can stand on their own two feet and develop and lead and deploy their own people. And when people think of global missions, this is typically what comes to mind. And then a lot of the time, they disqualify themselves because they feel that they are not pastors or church planters, and therefore, I can't be on mission. But church development is only one of the Alliance Canada's strategic pathways. The changing context of global Christianity has compelled us to widen our horizons and to adapt. What we thought was going to take five to ten years, COVID, accelerate that, that down to two to three years. What are the other strategic pathways? Our Relief and Development and Business for Transformation strategic pathway is led by Mark Jones. And in Relief and Development, we participate in God's mission of holistic transformation, proclaim and demonstrate the gospel as we walk with the poor and vulnerable and address short-term crisis and long-term needs. You see, when it comes to relief and development, there is a significant overlap of the 1040 window and places where people have been impacted by large-scale disasters. This is consistent with the pattern that the world's poorest physically also have little to no knowledge of Jesus. Most governments and most NGOs and the UN won't say that, but that's true. And secondly, God cares about people's suffering. That's why we need to care about people's suffering. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 11, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And some people will take that out of context and say, well, we don't have to care about the poor. No, it doesn't mean we don't care. It only means that we will need to regularly have ministry among and be generous with the poor because that passage comes from Deuteronomy 11. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I commend you to be open-hearted, open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. And James 1 would write this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so some of our ministry initiatives under community development include anti-exploitation of children and women, food insecurity, education, medical services, refugees and internally displaced peoples, orphans, anti-addiction. All of those in regions such as Southeast Asia, West Africa, North Africa, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe. What else do we do? 
See, mobilization and partnership seeks to develop worldwide partnerships to mobilize local believers, support the global south in fulfilling the Great Commission. As we said earlier, 67% of the world's Christians are in the global south. And so our Jaffray project offering goal this year is $300,000, and it will go towards the mobilization and partnership efforts with a South Asian initiative. And that initiative has a goal of 500,000 believers and 50,000 churches by 2030. It's huge. It's audacious. It's scary. And it's a good one. Our marketplace strategy, led by Harvey Michalis, it seeks to engage people with your vocational skills as ambassadors for Christ in cross-cultural contexts and to receive care, community, and coaching from our alliance teams all over the world. And the international church strategy deploys ministry-trained individuals to lead pastorally in international churches to reach multicultural diaspora communities with the good news. And you're wondering, Damien, what is a multicultural diaspora community? Well, both of these strategies, they seek to leverage the following. 280 million people are on the move. 280 million. If you put them all together in one country, they would be the fourth largest country in the world. And almost 140 million of those are Christians. And about 70 million are Muslims. So on the one hand, there is an unstoppable Christian workforce of almost 140 million who are already on the move. They are already somewhere else outside of their home country, waiting to be inspired to catch the vision for multiplying disciples wherever they are. And then on the other hand, you have 70 million Muslims on the move, many who are living and working outside of their potentially repressive regimes, who are more open and seeking alternatives to Islam, who are possible Christ followers that will one day return to their home countries and make disciples who make disciples. And so here are some of the reasons why the rise of the marketplace worker is critical. First of all, the socio-political challenges of the hardest and darkest regions of the world mean that we cannot only rely on the deployment of traditional missionaries to accomplish the Great Commission. Many of these places will not recognize and will not issue a missionary visa. Those days are done. And number two, marketplace workers get access to people and places that traditional missionaries can never access. And thirdly, God has set apart an army of gifted and passionate marketplace workers longing to be deployed to the nations. And some of you in this room, you're thinking, I need to go to seminary or I need to do some Bible before I go overseas. And God is saying, you just need to bring what you know now over there. What you do here over there, perhaps. Some of you here have been trained in IT or engineering or healthcare, education. You sense God leading you overseas, but you don't feel qualified because of your lack of theological education. But that's not what you're being hired to do. And so for many of you in this room, marketplace is a very viable overseas opportunity. The following is from a marketplace worker, a physician in the Middle East. He has gone through our marketplace affirmation process. He's actually a physician from one of our Alliance churches here in Calgary and now been in the region for, for six years, eight years. 
And at the height of COVID, he's one of the top hospitals in the country. At the height of COVID, he volunteered to be in a COVID tent. And this is what he said. For me, this was an opportunity to volunteer working long hours in our newly constructed COVID tent. Not a popular volunteer opportunity, you think? Lacking physicians eligible or willing to work in it. But I saw this opportunity differently. I saw it as an opportunity to sacrifice for my colleagues and risk my health for the benefit of others. An opportunity to lean into my purpose, let the light of Christ shine bright in my workplace. This doesn't just have to be overseas, folks. This can be right here, wherever you are. I fought hard in the trenches and did all I could to protect my family from the potential consequences, but I'm human, and today I've discovered I'm not invincible. After my last stretch of shifts, I suffered a bad headache and generalized aches and pains. Initially, I thought it was merely the stress of the fight, but the test told me differently. The test told me COVID found its way past my personal protective equipment and into my body. You see, this doctor lives according to one of the values of the marketplace affirmation statement, which says this. We go into this acknowledging that Christ calls us to suffer with him in the world and that we may experience this in our pursuit of faithful witness for him in the marketplace. And I don't believe this is just for marketplace workers or missionaries. This is for all of us. It is for all of us. So where do we go from here? After all that data, after hearing what Alliance International workers do in all these various strategies, where do we go from here? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for you? Let's get into some scriptures. In Luke 24, towards the end of his life, it says, then he opened their minds, Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Sometimes I've, I, I think that the scripture writers put some stuff in there that are so mind-blowing, but it's just so simple. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Light bulb lit in my head. Um, all of us need Jesus to open our minds so that we can understand the scriptures. There is no understanding of scriptures apart from Jesus opening our minds. And he told them, he says, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. I don't think the disciples had a hot clue of what was going to happen. Had no idea. And it's fine. Jesus was patient with them. But here it is. There's a reason why Jesus says the, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Um, I have walked with a lot of people in this last few years and even in our own life in understanding that in our world today, as we continue to see conflict after conflict and polarization and arguments and suffering after suffering, our greatest witness is to not save people from suffering, but to give a credible reason as to why suffering, as to the purpose of our suffering. I think the greatest witness of the church in this day and age is for people to look and say, FAC or any Alliance Church or any Christian that they look at, they say, it's not that they don't suffer, but their suffering has purpose. 
You are witnesses of these things, Jesus says. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Put up your hands if you think they had any idea what Jesus was talking about at this point. None. Zero. This was before he went to the cross. This was before they scattered. This was before they were huddled in their rooms, afraid that the authorities would come after them. No idea whatsoever. Didn't stop Jesus from telling them what was going to happen. And then we read in Acts. This is after Jesus rises from the dead, right? And, and, and they meet him. They put their hands through his wounds. They are sitting down with him. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. By the way, they saw Jesus die, and now he's eating with them. Do you realize the monumental shift that has happened in their world? They saw their master, they saw their teacher, they saw their best friend for the last three years who had worked all kinds of miracles, laced Razors from the dead, feed the 5,000, heal the lepers, the sick, send people away, bring them back, and they had seen all that, and then they had seen him die, probably the most violent death any human can die. Can you imagine where they were internally, where they were emotionally, where they were in their soul? All their dreams... All their hopes, everything they had thought was going to happen had vanished. And then Sunday came. And then he knocks on the door. And he shows up. And he eats with them. And he's telling them, by the way, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait. You will be baptized with power from on high. You see, if I was, maybe... If I was with them, I would say, whoa, Jesus, you died. We saw that, and now you're alive. Like, what are you talking about? I want to know what you're talking about. Or maybe I would have been just like them. We're just glad Jesus is back. Now we can get back to business as usual. The guy had just defeated death, and they wanted to, how do I know that? Well, read the next line. In Acts 1, verse 6, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Here he was telling them, don't leave. Wait until you will be baptized with power from on high. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because all they had in their minds was when Israel was at the height of power and David was king. And they ruled over all the world and all the land and the Israelites were the ones in power. And so they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it going to go back to what we know? Is the church going to be restored back to its glory days when we had a prime position in Canadian culture? Some of us are asking. Are you at this time going to restore us back to our former glory? Whatever that former glory looks like. So do you think Jesus takes them through a one-hour teaching on what's going to happen? Does he sound frustrated? Because he's been through this before, right? They've argued along the road, who would be the greatest? Who gets to sit at the right and the left? And Jesus said, you know what? I'm not going to bother. I'm just going to wait 
until you're all huddled up in the upper room. And so he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or days the Father has set by his own authority. I'm not even going to bother. But, and he reiterates, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Why? So that we can be restored to former glory, so that we can kick the Romans out, so that we can become mighty and powerful in culture once again? No. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The very reason why he came back and then he sent the Holy Spirit, he says, you're going to be clothed with power from on high, and from there you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he knew, by the way, they would suffer. He knew the kinds of death they would die. In the process, he told them, do we not remember? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus wasn't about to save them from all suffering, whatever, how terrible it was going to look. Because on this side of earth, they would be suffering. He wasn't counting on this side. He was the promise was for what's to come. And so we get to Acts 2. And when the day of Pentecost came, by the way, they were all huddling in the upper room, all 120 men, women, children, Slave, no free, Gentile, no Greek, no Jew. All there, huddled, probably afraid, probably scared, had no idea what was coming, together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. I love this part. What sounds like a violent wind? Like a tornado? The whole place is just blown to bits. I have no idea what it sounds like. And they saw, with their eyes, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. By the way, so it comes in, this ball, and they see what seemed to be tongues of fire separate and come to rest on each of them. It wasn't just a general outpouring so that some got sprinklings and some got a whole ton and some got very little. It was a intended unique pouring out, separating of tongues of fire on each person in the room. The Holy Spirit saw the uniqueness of each person and wanted to make sure no one was left out. And it says, all of them then were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The first outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the first church that we have in scriptures was so that people could understand the gospel in other languages. Do we get that? Do we understand that? It wasn't just for healing, although healing is great. It wasn't so that people might be restored, although that's great. It was so that other nations might understand the good news in their own language. Neither male nor female, nor slave nor free, nor Jew nor Gentile, young nor old. We think about that as access to, as receiving it. You see, the Holy Spirit is the great equalizer. And the great equalizer that qualifies everyone to receive the good news is also the great equalizer that qualifies everyone to proclaim the good news. 
He doesn't just qualify us to receive it. He qualifies us to proclaim it. Meaning, none of us in this room get to sit on a bench. None of us in this room get to sit on a bench. Whether it is to pray, whether it is to give, whether it is to go figure it out. But we don't get to sit on a bench. Missions isn't a byproduct or a side project of the church. It is what the church is meant to do until Jesus comes back. And so I'd like to invite Pastor Brianna to come up as she leads us through a time of community response this morning. Thank you, Damien. We're going to move into a time of response, as he said, and um, I just want to start that in a time of prayer. So would you pray with me? Jesus, we have received your word this morning through your faithful servant, Damien. And God, I pray right now as we all are processing that that spirit of knowing that this mission is for each one of us penetrates deep into our hearts, into our minds, and into action. God, I pray against any fear. I pray against any disobedience. Lord, would you move us to be a church on mission to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus? And God, this church, this unique church of FAC has a unique place in history. We have the nations here. We've sang in other languages at your throne this morning, God, and you are calling some of us to go back to those hard places, to our community with our unique culture and language and job, whatever you have gifted us with, God. May we see that as something that you are calling us to worship you with and to bring the gospel into the nations. And Jesus, this morning, I pray that each one of us will just hear so clearly what you are calling us to do, and that we may be moved into action. And God, I pray for the nations. I pray for softened hearts. I pray for open minds, for those who have no way of knowing you, that you may give them dreams and visions of Jesus Christ before them, that they may see the wholeness and healing and salvation that is in only your name, Jesus. And God, I pray that you use our church to be a beacon of light to the dark places, whether that be the pockets of society here in Calgary or some of us going with our jobs overseas. God, would you use us? May we be just filled with joy knowing that you choose to use us. Even in our brokenness, you have called us. And so God, we are your church and we bow down before you, God, and we say, come Holy Spirit, come, fill us with the truth that we are meant to be in worship with you and on mission around the world. God, we long to see the nations before you worshiping, and we know that you are God. And you say that the nations will exalt you. So we cling to that promise, knowing that only when the nations have heard will the end come. Only then will we be with you. So Jesus, we pray for the nations to come before you and worship you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Damien. Oh, what a word.